0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Wonderful uh, Wonderful to be together. And if you could open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. A number of you are new with us. And, uh... So I'll just orient you a little bit here. We are we usually teach through books of the Bible, and we were in the middle of teaching through the book of Acts, and we took a little bit of a detour, and are just covering this one chapter, Romans 8, uh, for a number of reasons. But the the it, it's it's been doing something in the life of our church. This passage, this truth from God, is doing something, and I was thinking about it. It's a little bit like I lived in Southern California for a lot of years. Don't worry, I was born in Texas, but I lived there for a lot of years, and uh, I lived in Pasadena, which is north of L.A. for a lot of years, love Pasadena, it's a beautiful city, uh, but it is not a good place to live in the summer, it can get hot, and the hotter it would get in the summer, there would just be smog that would be uh, just layered, the air would be brown and gray. And, uh, I mean, there were certain days where you could actually even feel it um, in your lungs. I mean, it was just really disgusting at that time of year in the summer. But what you could do is you could drive up the uh, mountains and you could get to a high enough spot that it was clear. Now, we know the air was bad there, too, but follow me for the sake of the illustration. Uh, and it was clear, and you would be looking out, and you could just see a blanket of smog over the city where you were, but you had, you had risen up to an elevation where the perspective was different, the air was clear, and for the sake of the illustration, uh, the air was clean or cleaner. And uh, and that's kind of what's been happening with some of us, I believe, as we've looked at this text, because you can sort of be in the stifling heat, the smoggy, sort of uh, sort of stinky, dense, dirty air of uh, walking around and living in condemnation as a Christian, walking around and living in an over awareness of one's sin and just sort of living in a a state of haze and smog. But this chapter has been like a drive up the mountain because as we get higher, our perspective clears and we see something of God that we didn't see down in the valley where you couldn't see too far in front of you. And what he shows us is not stifling, but freeing. It's the breath of grace. It's the breath of fresh air. It's the atmosphere of grace which changes everything. So as we've worked through this chapter, we've seen that God will never condemn us. That's where he starts. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, you will never be condemned. Not today, not tomorrow, never. There is no condemnation, verse 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've seen that we never could save ourselves. We couldn't obey God and make ourselves right with God, so God did what we never could do by sending Jesus to die for us. And if we are in Christ, his spirit lives in us. That's the other truth. So there's no condemnation, but God has actually come to dwell in us. We no longer live according to the flesh, that is according to our own uh, sinful heart, nature, but we live according to the spirit. So we have a new life, a new kind of life. He lives within us, and we can so take that for granted. But that should not be taken for granted. As, As the passage taught us last week, His Spirit dwells in us. Jesus said it this way. He, in John 14, He dwells with you and He will be in you, speaking of the Spirit. And as Pete preached last week, the Spirit living in us, no condemnation. There is this guarantee that God will see us to the end. So it's just good news after good news after good news. And when you think it just can't get any better, we hit this section. Today, This has been a thrill to go through this every week. I'm just excited. I can't wait to get into it. And today we're going to look at verses 12 through 17 and uh, maybe climb a little higher up the mountain or if God's already elevated you to a place of new perspective from His Word, may you, may you glance out and take in the beauty of his, of his grace today. Verse 12, chapter 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put, to, you put the deeds of the body, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for these words, for they are Your words. They are God-breathed words. And we ask that you would speak to us from these words. We pray that you would open our ears, pray that you would open our minds, we pray that you would open our hearts, that our affections would be stirred by the truth of your word and we pray that you would change us today. May there be an encounter in this room in our hearts. Those who don't know you, may they may they come to a realization of how great and glorious you are and how needy they are and may they meet you today. And for those who know you, may, may we become renewed and reacquainted and refreshed and revived in the great truths in this passage. So speak to us today by your spirit. We rely entirely upon you as we approach this and pray that you would do good things beyond what we would ask or think in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I only want to make two points out of this passage. There's kind of two different ideas. Normally we try to have a sermon with a central idea, but there's kind of two ideas in this passage, and they, they intersect in verse, um, in verse 14. The two big ideas intersect. But really the first big idea is that the Spirit has given us life. And so there's going to be this talk about life and death, and the Spirit is the one that has given us life. The flesh breeds death. Look back to the verses we read last week, verses 9 and 10. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So all Christians have the Spirit, it says. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So the Spirit gives us life. And in verse 12, where we're looking now, he begins by saying, So then, because the Spirit has given us life, because the Spirit has made us new people, we are not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. He's saying this, you owe the flesh nothing. What did the flesh ever do for you but kill you? What did the flesh ever do to you, for you, but lie to you? What did the flesh ever do but hold out the promise of great satisfaction and yet hide the hook that was under the worm? All the flesh ever does is make promises that it cannot keep. It says you will find joy in life if you do these things apart from God, and in the end, there is death. We are not debtors to the flesh. The flesh did not save us. We couldn't obey the law in the flesh. It did not save us, and it never brought us satisfaction. It brought us crushing, uh, crushing oppression into our lives. But this is a different approach. Some people think this, that to be a Christian, I need to keep all the rules and be a really moral and a really good person, and that makes me a a Christian. I do enough good things, I avoid enough bad things. But the Bible says being a Christian is totally different. It's, It's realizing that you never could do enough good things, and you never could pay for all your bad things. So Jesus did that for us. Jesus saves us. He gives us His Spirit. And now we live the Christian life, not just in our own strength, saying no to this and no to that because that's really bad and God wants to ruin our fun, but he's saying something very different. He's saying you were in the flesh, you now owe nothing to the flesh because it dominated you with death, but now you have the Spirit, and that is life. The implication here is that we're not debtors to the flesh, but we are, what's the implication? Debtors to the Spirit. Now, not debtors to the Spirit in the sense of we've got to pay God back for what He did, for we can never pay Him back, but debtors to the Spirit in this sense. Spirit of God, I owe you everything. Lord Jesus, I owe you everything. You are glorious. You are wonderful. You have done for me what I could never do for myself. And so I want to offer my life to you as a living sacrifice. I, I want you... Not debtors in the sense of we owe God uh, to pay Him back, but debtors in the sense that He did what we never could do for ourselves, and we are elevating Him in our lives. So, if we don't owe the flesh, because it never did anything to help us, and if we are not, verse 12, to live according to the flesh, what should we do about the flesh? Which is the sinful nature, the NIV translates it that way. What, what should we do about that? Well, we should kill it. We should kill it. I mean, this is a violent passage. Put it to death is what it says. We should kill the flesh. We should kill the deeds of the body is what it says. We are now empowered by the Spirit to live a new life. And so to live the new life, we have to make sure that we're putting to death the old life. It is not alive to us. Jesus is alive to us, and we are free to live a new life way of life. So verse 13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So life free in Christ is about putting to death the deeds of the body. There's an old word for this that you may have heard before, and it is called mortification. Sounds like something that happens at a funeral home. I'm a mortician At a mortuary, what do you do? Mortification. I mean, that sounds like something that would happen at a funeral home to me, but mortification means to put to death. So put to death the deeds of the body is what he says here. Now here's two things he's not talking about, which we could instantly go to. First of all, he is not talking about asceticism. Asceticism is the idea that it is spiritual to live with extreme self-denial. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. That it is not spiritual to live with extreme, you know, kind of harsh, austere self-punishment or self-denial. To, to, like, to just live with some strict set of self-discipline just to do it because that is spiritual. I remember talking to a guy one time he told me, you know, I just try to do something every day that's super painful that I really don't want to do. I thought, well, not me. That's interesting. You know, I, that thought never occurred to me. <laughs> but, but is, that's not a spiritual approach to life. That yeah, I'm just going to prove that I'm a follower of Christ because I'm just going to do something that's really, really hard today. I'm going to walk barefoot on hot pavement for the glory of God. I don't know what, what. There's nothing about that that is spiritual. So it's not talking about being austere and being against your body. You know, there's a parallel verse that I think. Clarifies or helps shine the light on what he means. It's Colossians 3, 5. This is what he says there. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you put to death? What is earthly in you? Then he goes on and lists. What is that sexual immorality? impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So put those things to death, those things for which Jesus died, those things that brought you death, those things that you used to be captive to. We are called to do that by the power of the Spirit. So it's not asceticism. So is put to death the deeds of the body? Is that legalism? It could be. It could be legalism. If, if we put to death the deeds of the body, if we put to death the list that we just read, immorality, impurity, evil desire, covetousness, if we put those kind of things to death, that is, we're trying to avoid them, we're trying to get away from them, we're trying to stop doing them. If we stop and reject and turn away and put to death those things so that God will approve of us more, it's legalism. If we reject and avoid those things so God will have favor on us more, it's legalism because we are trying to take our actions and make ourselves acceptable to God. If we are doing those things so that we will feel good about ourselves and morally superior to other people, if we are avoiding those sins to please ourselves because we feel better about ourselves when we do those things, that's legalism. If... We are putting to death certain things that we think we shouldn't do, and certain codes of conduct that we have set for ourselves that aren't clear guidelines of Scripture. In other words, if we are creating our own laws and avoiding certain things that we think we shouldn't avoid, though God never specifically tells us that we must avoid those things, if we create our own set of rules and laws and preferences that we are seeking to live by, and so we're avoiding certain things that we've added to the list in the Bible, That's legalism, because we're creating our own law before God. But if we are living with this in mind, I wake up in the morning, and Romans 8, 1 defines my day. There is no condemnation. There is therefore now, this morning, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we wake up realizing that we have been declared righteous by what Christ has done totally outside of ourselves, if we realize God dwells in us by His Holy Spirit and that He's giving us power to experience life today for Him, if we realize what we're going to get to in a minute, that we have been adopted by the Father and nothing can separate us from His love, that we are secure in His love no matter what, and the Spirit lives in us, therefore we are going to put to death those things. That's life. That's not legalism. That is living from the perspective that my identity in Christ defines who I am and how I live. I don't, my behavior does not determine my identity in Christ. We are justified, that is, declared righteous by God because of what Christ has done, not because of what progress we have made in sanctification, which is growth in holiness. That sounds a little theological. Maybe a better way, a clearer way to say that would be, our position, our relationship with God is not determined by our behavior. It's determined by Christ's behavior, and it is secure. Therefore, we want to live for the one. We're not a debtor to the flesh. We're a debtor to mercy. We're a debtor to Christ. We're a debtor to the Spirit. So putting to death the deeds of the flesh, can that be legalism? Well, of course it can. But it can also be life, and it's intended to be life in the Spirit. We don't put to deed the death the deeds of the body. We don't put to death the flesh. We don't put to death sin to gain God's approval Because we already have it. We don't put the death sin to earn God's favor because we already have received His favor freely given. We don't pay back grace. We enjoy grace and receive it and live free lives. Derek Thomas, a Presbyterian pastor and professor as well, wrote this. He said, What we need in order to engage in biblical holiness is a right understanding of who we are. If we forget who we are, we will fail to be what we should be. If we forget who we are, we will fail to be what we should be. If we forget, I'm declared righteous. If we forget... No condemnation. If we forget, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. If we forget, He is my Father. If we forget, we've been given the Spirit of life. If we forget, we've been reconciled to God through Christ. If we forget, we are totally forgiven of all our sins. If we forget, all of those new creation realities. If we forget, I'm a new creation in Christ. All things have become new. If we forget these things. If we forget that He who who began a work in us will complete it. If we forget all of those things, we will never be what God's called us to be, because we will seek inevitably to earn. We will seek, our efforts will be to earn, and we will not live, we will live as slaves and not free people. We will live as slaves, not as sons of God. See, what this passage, if we look at the first 13 verses overall, what it's telling us is that sin doesn't belong in our lives. Sin is evil, sin is wrong. Sin is forbidden? Yes. All of that is true. But ultimately, sin doesn't belong in our lives because of who we are in Christ, because of what God has done in us. Earlier in this chapter, verses 6 and 7, it says we're to set our minds on the spirit because the mindset on the flesh is death. It's hostile to God. We are children of God, not hostile to God. We're adopted. We're justified. We're not living hostile to God. We're not called to live hostile in hostility. Verse 7, in hostility to God. That's not our calling. We're called to fight sin because of who Christ has declared us to be. We're called to fight the flesh and put it to death by the Spirit because it doesn't belong. We're to kill sin because it doesn't belong. Let me illustrate this for you. This is an illustration that will connect with junior high boys. If you, are, if you just finished 5th, 6th, 7th, or 8th grade and you're male, raise your hands. Okay, guys, this is for you. I don't have a lot of junior high boys stories. This is for you. And not only are you going to like this, but your mom's not, and it's going to be fun. That your mom does not like this. I'm not saying dishonor your mom. I'm saying she's not going to like this, and you are. Here we go. Sin doesn't belong. Kill it. <clears throat> this week my daughter, <coughs> excuse me, she drives out. I'm, <coughs> I'm touched. I'm broken up and I haven't even told the introduction yet. <coughs> I'm going to have every junior high boy in the room crying in just a minute like I am. So my daughter goes out. <coughs> She's with her friend. She says we're going. She leaves. I get a text three minutes later. I'm sitting in the living room. I get a text. The, dad, the garage door won't shut. The garage door won't shut. So uh, that's strange. We've had some garage door problems historically. So I walk out there. And I press the button, the garage door won't shut. So I I look at the little light thing at the bottom, you know, to see if anything's blocking uh, the little sensors. There's nothing there. So I think, okay, I'm going to have to physically shut this thing. So I'll pull that little rope that hangs down, and I try to pull the garage door down, and it will not go. It will not move. It is stuck. I cannot move the garage door. Now... At the top of the garage door, there are a couple of spools, and on those two spools, a cable runs up, and the cable, so the spools like this, the cable goes up and wraps around it, and that's how your door comes up. I look up at the spools, and around one of the spools is wrapped a big snake. Are you with me, men? Guys, are you with me? I'm talking a snake, and so... So I'm going, oh my goodness. And so I, uh, I didn't touch it with my hand, but I got an instrument... And I touch it, and it's alive. Its tail is moving. And what has happened is the snake had somehow shimmied up the cable, climbed up. The snake climbs up in the top of our garage door. And when my daughter leaves, she never saw it, thank the Lord. When my daughter leaves, the garage door goes up. And as it does, the cable goes around. And just when it was about done, it must have moved. And the cable locked it in there. So it's ripped open. I can see that the snake's ripped open a little bit. Are you with me, junior high boys? It's ripped open a little bit. And so I'm saying, what am I going to do? I'm not a snake. I, I have nothing to do with snakes. So, uh, so what I do is I think, okay, I just got to pull this thing down. Then I think if I pull this thing down and the snake gets going and, and then it's, it's in my garage, it's going to, I don't know. So I just start pulling and I pull I mean, it is caught. That, what happens, the snake, because it got caught, it's popped everything and the other spool uh, and the cable totally came undone. I later found out that the, also the tension on the spring is loosened. So the, the garage door is broken now. So I'm trying to pull. It will not come down. There's a snake in the garage, ladies. It will not come down. So finally, I yank really hard and it comes about halfway down. I walk around to the spool and the snake has now moved in the spool and now there's six inches of snake below the spool and it's the head six inches down and the snake is upside down going, trying to bite. So I'm thinking, what do I do? Well, he's still alive, and some, there's probably some reptilian folks in the church. Oh, I hope you saved it and let it go. I told my wife, if I tell about killing the snake, they could going to be offended people. She said, this is Texas. Nobody's be offended. In California, there'd be species that would be picketing. If I told about killing a snake, they would pick it. We lived in California. They would not build a highway because there was some rare beetle under the highway. In the dirt, we moved to Texas. They're building the tollway. They found human remains under the tollway. Guys took a break, went to the food truck, got lunch, and then kept building. I mean, so Texas is totally different. So, uh, so I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Now, I will because there may be younger people, and because there's moms and ladies in the room, I won't go into detail. But let me say this: I went and got hedge clippers, and you can trim more than the bushes with hedge clippers. <laughs> Okay, so now we've got a snake that's no longer living, but it was a mercy killing because he was wrapped and injured. So I finally get it down. I push it all the way down. Snake comes out and disposes of the carcass, and there we go. So the next day, I have to get the garage repaired, so I call a company. Garage door repair guy comes out, and uh, he's blown away by the story, by the way. and uh, So I tell him the story, and he said, this is his comment to me. Well, did you take care of him? And I thought for a minute, did I take, like, what were the options? I've got a a, a squeeze snake and a cable, you know, that's halfway dead. Did I, he's wanting to know, did you exterminate the snake? And I'm thinking, what are the options? Am I going to gingerly pull it down so that I can take the snake in and give him, like my two-year-old grandson, hey, would you like the snake? (laughs) Am I going to pull him down and pet him and put him, give him a chair at the kitchen table? Am I going to bring him in to my wife and say, look what I found? I mean, when I told her there was a snake, she, oh, she does this thing. Whoa. She, she gets the shivers at the mention of a snake or looking into my eyes. Either way, <laughs> has a similar effect. And uh, so, like, what am I going to do with it? it be, I was like, uh, yes, I got rid of him. But what an absurd idea. He doesn't belong in my garage or in my house. He doesn't belong. I didn't know if he was poisonous or not. did some research. He wasn't. But if he was poisonous, I mean, I, like I'm going to bring him in and expose him to my life and to my family. He doesn't belong there. And so I killed them i don 't play with snakes i don 't welcome snakes i don 't try to figure out if they 're safe or if they 're not safe, if they 're in my house, I mean, if they 're out in the wilderness, fine, let them do the deal. but they 're coming in my house, climbing up my garage door, ready to plop down on anyone in my family they 're gone. you don 't play with snakes in the garage. You, you get rid of them. You exterminate them. We don 't play with sin because it does not belong in our lives. It, we exterminate by the power of the spirit. We put it. To death. We get rid of it. It's not legalistic to get rid of the snake. It's not ascetic. Oh, that's so hyper self-discipline to get rid of the snake. Oh, you're legal. You got rid of the snake. Oh, you're all about the rules. No, the snake doesn't belong. So the snake must go because this is our house with our family. And in our lives, it is the spirit of God that lives in us that has given us new life. He saved us from the flesh. He saved us from sin. And so we don't entertain it. We don't listen to it. Jesus, and this was a great act of discipleship, by the way, because Jesus, Genesis 3 promised that he would crush the head of the serpent. The ministry of Jesus is to crush the snake. I'm just following my Lord this week in the garage. (laughs) Put him to death. Now, look what it says. It says, you put him to death. You put to death, verse 13, but this is so important, if By the Spirit you put to death, the deeds of the flesh. The Spirit is living. How do we put sin to death? By the Spirit. Here's what the Spirit of God does. He comes into us, and He begins to change our attitude. He begins to change our desires. He begins to say, ooh, I don't like snakes. He begins to change, before I was covered in snakes and saw no problem. Now I don't like that. He's giving us new appetites. He's changing us. So we really do participate in our growth and holiness. We really do participate in a very real way in our sanctification. But let's be clear about this. It is by the Spirit we do that. Sanctification is not 50% God, 50% you. Absolutely not. Do we participate? Yes. Are we active? Yes. Do we have effort? Yes. But it's Spirit-empowered effort. It's not 50-50. We work because Philippians 2 says He is at work in us. He is at work. Our sanctification does not rest on our power, our ability, uh, our self-control. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that works self-control in us. So, which is it? Is it God or is it me? It's both with accent on God. It it is, is accent on God. It's confidence in God. When we think about our sanctification, the priority is given to Him. The Spirit has the majority ownership stake in our sanctification, not us. We, we respond to what He is doing. He illumines the Scripture and opens our eyes. He brings conviction. He changes our hearts. He provides a way of escape. He conforms us to Christ. He gives us a growing hatred of sin and a love for our Savior. Our confidence must be rooted in Him and not ourselves. And here's where this gets really interesting. Look at verse 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, verse 14, for, that means because, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit, for. He says, because all who are led by the Spirit. What does the led by the Spirit point to? Led by the Spirit points to putting to death the deeds of the body. It's it's the Spirit on either side. If by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, all who are led by the Spirit. He's actually equating putting to death the deeds of the body there with led by the Spirit. Now, when we say led by the Spirit, and this isn't wrong, but we usually mean uh, the Lord prompted me to share my faith with that person. I was led by the Spirit. Uh, I took this new job. Why did you take the new job? I just felt like the Spirit led me to take the new job. Here, the Bible says being led by the Spirit literally is putting to death uh, the deeds of the body. That, that that is being led by the Spirit. That I'm following the Spirit, I'm led, I'm empowered, He dwells in me. To do what? To put to death the deeds of the Spirit. I mean, deeds of the flesh, I'm sorry. And give us the life of the Spirit. It's a very powerful truth. It points back to our identity in Christ. So I'm not going into all the detail of how do we put to death the deeds of the body. This passage doesn't really talk about that. But I just want to draw the fact that that is in a passage that talks about who we are in Christ, what God has done for us. And so the accent, the emphasis, our eyes are primarily to be looking to him for his work within us and not to ourselves. Those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. So the first point is that the Spirit gives us life And that life empowers us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Verse 15 uh, transitions to talking about adoption. So the Spirit has made us God's children. Spirit has given us life. Number two, the Spirit makes us God's children. Verse 14 says those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. term means sons and daughters, children of God. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the spirit has made us God's children. This is such good news that not only are we justified, that is, not only does the judge say no condemnation, but we are also made his children. And that makes all the difference in how we relate to God. I want to point out several things in these next verses that are true about our identity because we are children of God. Here's the first one. Because we are children, we have freedom. Because we are children, we have freedom. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. We are not fearful slaves. Now, the Bible does speak about the fear of the Lord. Christian or non-Christian, we're called to fear the Lord. So a Christian is to fear the Lord, but what he is talking about is a holy reverence. The, the fear of the Lord is a holy reverence for the Father whose love we have experienced. We're not slaves in fear of God. What, what, is, what is the spirit of fear of a slave? Well, a slave is, the idea would be one who's perhaps cowering, trembling with dread, because if I didn't fulfill the rules, the master will punish me. If I didn't do what the master wants me to do, or in a terrible situation, if the master's just in a bad mood and I'm the slave, I could take a beating. A lot of times a master might be capricious, that is, one way or the other, might not be fair or just. So a slave lives under the cowering fear of pleasing a master, and he's saying that's not your relationship with God. If you are living always wondering if God is going to get you, if every time something bad happens in your life, you just instantly think, God's just getting me. God's just getting me for what I have done. That he is always watching out to catch me and give me a few lashes. That my relationship with him is based on, if I'm doing good, God loves me. If I'm doing good, I'm accepted. If I'm doing good, as a, in, 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 then, then God welcomes me. That is not the relationship of a Christian To the Father, is what he says. So that that is living a life that is terrorized. A slave who is in fear, falls back into fear, is always worried about judgment coming upon them. But Romans 8, 1 says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God, verse 3, has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus already tasted condemnation in our place. Jesus was already judged for our sins. There is no slave master who is out to get us. We don't have that spirit of that kind of fear. We're not to as Christians. But you have received the spirit of adoption of adoption as sons by whom we cry, "Abba, Father." So the spirit the spirit uh, communicates to us that not only is there no condemnation, but we are god 's children. because we are children, so number one, because we are children, we are free. Number two would be because we are children, we have access. Look at what he says, because of the spirit of adoption we cry, Abba, Father. I think this is the only place in the Scripture that the phrase spirit of adoption is used, but it means that the Holy Spirit makes our adoption as sons. It is the Spirit that communicates that to us. It's the Spirit that makes that real. It's the Spirit that promises us that. It's the Spirit that convinces us of that. It's the Spirit that communicates the love of the Father to us. It's the Spirit that teaches us what it is intellectually to understand and in our affections what it is to feel the love of the Father. That's what the Spirit does. So the Spirit of adoption works in us that we would cry, Abba, Father. We have a new access to God by the Spirit. When the Spirit comes into your life, you, as a new believer, when you become a Christian, you receive the Spirit and you get access to the Father. There's an intimate closeness here. Abba, Father. The Spirit leads us to say that, to address God as Father. Abba is a Jewish name for Father. It is a common and familiar form of address. We could say familial. It's familial. It's familiar. It's a common and a familiar form of address. It's not formal. It's more casual in nature in its address. It carries a warm relational tone, not a formal tone. Sometimes you'll hear taught that it is a it is a word that was specifically used by little kids. Um, maybe like a little child would say daddy or something like that. From, probably what, I've re- from what I've read from scholars, uh, that's probably too restrictive. It was not a term that just little children used. It was a term that adults would use as well. That, that it was the term that a Jew used to address their father was Abba. So the idea is probably not that it's what a little kid would say. It's not a childish word, but it's a relational, warm term. It's a connected term. It's not the term father which would be you know, more the formal term, it's perhaps the term like maybe dad, if you were addressing personally, a kid or an adult would address. It's what you would call them, what you would personally say to your own father. Most people would not say father to their father. That would be more of a title, but they would say something warmer. So that's what it is. It communicates relationship, closeness, intimacy, warmth, but not necessarily childishness. Jesus is the one who introduces the term. Jesus prayed this way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, this was not the way Jews prayed. And in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14, when Jesus is about to die, this is his prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So he prayed this way. He taught his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven. He he prayed, He gives us the Spirit so that now we would pray like He would. We are with Christ, we are in Christ, and we address the Father just as Christ does. The Spirit comes to us, and He puts us in relationship to the Father and addressing the Father as the Son, Jesus, addressed the Father. Abba, Father. We cry out to the Father in the same way. And I love the fact that it says, we cry. It perhaps indicates a sense of need, a sense of desperation, a sense of an awareness of our our need for help. It's when we come to God and we have a need, we address Him as someone who we are near, who is close to us, who is warm, our dad. We address Him in that way. So it communicates. The Spirit is letting us know you have a new relationship with God. He's a judge who has declared you righteous. That's wonderful. But there's something warmer to this image. He is your Father. It's a communication that God loves us like a perfect Father. None of us have had a perfect Father. None of us have been a perfect Father. God is the perfect Father. So we are loved. We are cared for. When we cry, Abba, Father, it's a call that we are protected That we are fed, that we are guided, that we are corrected with love, that we are encouraged, that we are embraced by the Creator, that the Creator of all, the Judge of all, the Sovereign over all, embraces us with the love of a Father and says, Come near, you are loved, protected, and cared for. Ray Ortland, in a book that we have, that we've been selling on Romans 8, um, I forget the title, something about supernatural life. But it's all on Romans 8. We've been selling that. You can get it at the bookstore. But he said this. He said, Abba, Father, that's what justification feels like. So we are justified and declared righteous, which is a glorious truth. It is the basis, a a basis of our relationship with God. Not the only one. But a central, primary basis of our relationship with God is that the judges declared us righteous. But something different is communicated by adoption, that we're his children. That has has a heart, and an effective, an affectionate kind of uh, part to our relationship. There is a loving assurance. The Father gives a loving assurance to us, and that's the basis for living the Christian life. We don't put to death sin so that our Father will approve of us. Our Father already loves us, And our Father has given us His Spirit. And our Father is empowering us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That puts a whole different light on what it means to grow in holiness. It's growing in grace. It's growing as children. So we have this access. Not only that, number three, because we are children, we have assurance. We have assurance. Look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The spirit of adoption who communicates that the Father has chosen us and brought us to himself gives us assurance of our salvation. He literally says he bears witness with our spirit. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If you struggle as a Christian with your status before God, if you struggle as a Christian with your relationship with God, if you even struggle as a Christian with your security in God, God has done something to help you. He's given you the spirit of adoption who bears witness with your spirit to secure you in the reality that you are a son or a daughter, a child of God. You know, there are a lot of things that we can do to help someone who wrestles with assurance. We can recommend i did this last week to someone we can recommend books some very helpful books we've got some good resources that'll give you a bible study take you through the scripture we can do that we can counsel a a mature friend godly friend can counsel can pray with you but it is the spirit and the spirit alone it is the holy spirit alone that works deep into our hearts to sort of stamp and blazon that assurance once and for all in our souls that's a work of the spirit so God does that. God does that so that we have an assurance of our salvation, not based on our performance, but based on the performance of Christ and based on the love of the Father. God wants us to experience the security of the Father's love, which says nothing can separate you from my love. That is the breeding ground for growing in holiness. It's n- what makes us want to live a life that pleases the Lord is not to gain his pleasure, but it is to live in the good that we already are his pleasure, that he sings over us, that he smiles over us, that he loves us, that he gave the greatest sacrificial gift possible, his son, to demonstrate his love for us. And so the Spirit of God communicates deep within us through the Scripture as we read the Scripture, the truth of the Scripture of what Christ has done. He opens that truth to us so that we're not looking internally, we're looking outside of ourselves for our salvation, and the Spirit gives us that internal confidence, that internal assurance. When there is a rest in our soul, when we're resting in the love of God, when we're resting in the assurance of the Father, when we're resting in the love of our great Savior, then... We are in a posture and we are in a place to live a life that radically glorifies Him. It it, it comes from a heart of rest. It comes from a soul that's secure. It comes from the Spirit of God communicating and convincing us of our identity in Christ so that we really then do mature and grow out of those benefits that come to us. Access, freedom. Welcome before a throne of a grace, accepted, loved, held forever by grace. That's a ground to live a life pleasing to the Lord. And that's what the Lord wants each of us to have who know him. Lastly, because we are children, we are heirs. This is, this is an astounding verse. I mean, all of this is astounding that because we are children, we are free. Because we are children, we have access. Because we are children, we have assurance. But this is really amazing. Because we are children, we are heirs. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He says we're heirs. So he makes the connection that you've been adopted, you're his children, and now you're going to receive an inheritance. Your heirs. So heir, an inheritance, an heir, is someone who receives something, typically, from their parents. In the ancient world, this was actually a, uh, a significant reason for adopting a child. If, uh, if a couple did not have children, they would adopt a child, um, and in, th- in that culture they would adopt a son, so that their name would be carried on, that was very important, so that their name would be carried on, and so that all that they have and have received in their family, you know, the family farm, as it were, or whatever else, that all of that would be passed on to another generation because if they didn't have an heir, it wouldn't go to anyone. And so the readers of this letter would have been aware that an adopted son was an heir, and sometimes the adopted son was brought into the family in a primary way to just receive all this inheritance. Just a beautiful picture of grace. Beautiful picture that he's, he's coming into the family to receive. And so we are fellow heirs with Christ. Christ is our big brother, as it were. We are sons of God. He is the Son of God. And so he is our, uh, we are fellow heirs. We are heirs with him. But what do we inherit? I mean, at one level, you could think, well, we inherit eternal life, we inherit heaven, we inherit something that's imperishable. Um, the scripture says, laid up for us with him. So we certainly do inherit heaven. But that's not what this text says. This text says we are heirs of God. That we're his children, but he's the inheritance. That we are heirs of God. What we get, we don't just get heaven. We get God. We receive him. We know him. He is our glorious inheritance. If we were to get to heaven as an inheritance and God wasn't there, it wouldn't be heaven. What makes heaven heaven is that God is there and that we have direct access to Him, direct communion with Him, direct sight of Him, direct eternity in His presence with no sin and no barrier between us and Him. That is heaven. Heaven. He is heaven. When you see images of heaven, it is Christ on the throne that is the center of heaven that is drawing all the attention of heaven, all the admiration, all the glory of heaven is fixed on Him. It's not the streets of gold that people are enamored by. It's not the environment. It's the God of heaven. And he says, you're just sons. You're not just getting some land. You're not just getting some family heirlooms. You're getting God. God is our inheritance. We are an heir of God. It's just a glorious picture. In the meantime, we will suffer, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. In this life, and the next passage is going to be on suffering, in this life we suffer... But we have a great gain and a great inheritance. We are secure. We are loved. We have this wonderful inheritance. God is ours. Whom do we have in heaven but Him? He is our inheritance now, and He will be our inheritance forever. In the meantime, there is suffering, but there is coming a day that we will be glorified with Him, is what the end of the verse says. So God has given us His Spirit. God has given us the Spirit of life. God has adopted us. Through the spirit of adoption, he is now our father. And so when we think about living a Christian life, when we think about godliness, these are the truths that are the foundation of our lives. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I could start with what am I supposed to be doing? Am I doing the right thing? That's the foundation of my Christian life. That's The, fa- the foundation of my Christian life is my behavior. The foundation of my Christian life is... How I'm doing with my thought life or my speech or my actions. The foundation of our Christian life is that because of Jesus Christ, we are not condemned, we never will be condemned. The foundation of our Christian life is we're indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of life lives in us. So we live according to the Spirit and not the flesh. The foundation of our Christian life is that we are adopted children. What does that mean? It means we're free. It means we have intimate access to the Father. It means that we have assurance, that the Spirit communicates assurance. It means that we are heirs, that we have a glorious inheritance, which may include a lot of things, but ultimately includes God Himself. That's the grace God calls us to live in. It doesn't start each day with, what am I supposed to do today? What we do is very important. Everything we do matters. Don't misunderstand question is, why do we do what we do? What motivates us to do what we do? And when we fail, how do we think about that? That's the key. The key to the Christian life is being secure. The key to walking with the Lord is being secure in these truths. That we have been, we could theologically say, justified. That is, declared righteous before him, totally accepted, forgiven, and given the righteousness of Christ. That we, another theological term, we have been adopted We have been brought into his family so that we no longer have the fear of a slave, but we have the access of a son and the affection and the intimacy of a son to his father. And that nothing can separate us from his love. So that we are free to live a life for his glory. Free to live a life. He is pleased with us. Therefore, we can live a life for his pleasure. Therefore, we can live for his glory. He accepts us. He has favor on us. Therefore, we can live a life by his spirit, for his glory, in his honor. And that is life. Any other approach is death, the passage says. So I wonder for us, I wonder for us as a church, I wonder for us as individuals in the church, I wonder how much do we live our lives consciously aware of these truths, breathing this air, as I've used that, that metaphor, breathing this air of no condemnation, no separation, adopted and dwelt by the Spirit, experiencing life as the Spirit leads us and empowers us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Life in the flesh is death, but life in the Spirit is life. And we have been saved for life. I wonder how much those truths... Register with us, animate us, empower us, secure us, cause us to to be at rest in our souls, Cause 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 us to be joyful, cause us to be free. That's the fruit. A slave who is now adopted as a son is free and joyful. And all of life has a different hue, doesn't it? Even though we suffer with him, we live with these truths in mind that we will be glorified by Him. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at frisco.org.